Welcome back. In this lecture, we're going to examine two arguments against Islam, which I call the argument from theological incoherence and the argument from forced inconsistency. These arguments attack Islam on logical grounds and show that Islam is, at bottom, incoherent, inconsistent, and absolutely nonsensical. Let's begin with the argument from theological incoherence to see what I mean. For nearly 2,000 years, Christians have proclaimed Jesus' death, resurrection, and deity as the core elements of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Islam rejects all three of these doctrines and offers a different account of what Jesus claimed and of what happened at the cross and afterwards. However, the Muslim explanation comes at a tremendous price. The Muslim version of the story portrays God as a horrible deceiver and Jesus as the most stupendous failure in the history of prophets. And here we have a problem. The Quran declares in Surah 24:25 that Allah is truth. Muslims also claim that they revere Jesus as one of Allah's mightiest prophets. So we have some claims that just don't line up. Allah is truth, and yet Allah deceives people who follow his prophets and starts false religions in the process. Jesus is one of Allah's greatest prophets, and yet Jesus is totally incompetent and a complete failure. In this lecture, we're going to uh, see that Islam is theologically incoherent. We cannot make sense of it. Islam will claim that Allah is all just and all merciful, and then will turn around and immediately deny Allah's justice and mercy. Islam will declare that Allah is all powerful and completely good, and then will turn around and deny his power and goodness. Islam is filled with theological contradictions and absurdities. In this one, we're going to focus specifically on the absurdity of Islam's version of what happened in the early days of Christianity. Uh, the argument goes like this. Premise one, if Islam is theologically incoherent, it's false. Premise two, Islam is theologically incoherent. Conclusion, therefore, Islam is false. I think that my first premise is obviously true. The only way around it would be to say that God can reveal a religion that's incoherent, inconsistent, filled with contradictions and absurdities. Uh, God can't be like that because then uh, these contradictions and absurdities would have to be part of God's nature. Um, I'm not sure what kind of God that would be, but it certainly isn't the all-knowing, all-powerful, infinite, holy, and good deity proclaimed by Christianity and on the surface by Islam. Consistency is really the admission price for entering into the world of rational investigation and discussion. Given that logic is part of God's nature, I think it's safe to say that any religion revealed by God will be coherent. Now, I should point out uh, the difference between incoherence and incomprehensibility. Some things are incomprehensible, meaning uh, they're beyond our minds. We can't grasp them. We can't grasp the infinite nature of God. We can't completely understand the Trinity. So there's no question that in for Muslims and for Christians, some things are beyond our limited understanding. They're incomprehensible. But that's very different from saying that something is incoherent. Something is incoherent when it can't be true because various parts of the various parts of the view simply cannot go together. This is a problem with Islam. It's incoherent. The only thing to prove, then, is that Islam is theologically incoherent. We'll spend most of this lecture examining six facts and the implications of these facts, and this will give us ample evidence that Islam is incoherent. And then we'll move on to our next argument. 
If we examine the teachings of Islam, we find that Allah not only helped start Christianity, but also made Christianity the world's dominant religion. This fact should seem strange to everyone since Muslims believe that Christianity is a false, corrupt religion. Muslims maintain that Christianity is a false religion uh, because it was corrupted by man, um, but that in its original state, it was a message of Allah given to Jesus, the son of Mary. While there isn't a shred of evidence that the followers of Jesus ever believed anything similar to Islam, this is beside the point. According to Islam, Christianity was corrupted by Allah himself. To understand why Islam demands such a view and why we can't make sense of it, uh, let's consider some facts. Fact number one. The Quran states that Jesus was a messenger of Allah and a prophet of Islam. Surah 19 tells us that Jesus began preaching Islamic theology the moment he was born. Let's read verses 23 through 26 and 30 through 33, Surah 19. And the throes of childbirth compelled Mary to betake herself to the trunk of a palm tree. She said, Oh, would that I had died before this and had been a thing quite forgotten. Then the child, i.e. the infant Jesus, called out to her from beneath her, Grieve not, Surely your Lord has made a stream to flow beneath you and shake towards you the trunk of the palm tree. It will drop on you fresh, ripe dates. So eat and drink and refresh the eye. Surely I am a servant of Allah. He has given me the book and made me a prophet. And he has made me blessed wherever I may be. And he has enjoined on me prayer and porate so long as I live. And dutiful to my mother. And he has not made me insolent, unblessed. And peace on me on the day I was born, and on the day I die, and on the day I am raised to life. Jesus continued to preach Islam throughout his earthly life. According to the Quran, the gospel that Jesus brought was no different from the message of the prophets before him. Jesus, a servant and prophet of Allah, preached Islam. We see this in Surah 42.13. The same religion has he established for you as that which he enjoined on Noah, that, that which we have sent by inspiration to thee, and that which we enjoined on Abraham, Moses, and Jesus, namely, that ye should remain steadfast in religion and make no divisions therein. So the religion preached by Muhammad was the same religion preached by Noah, Abraham, Moses, and Jesus. In Surah 43, we even find uh, a sample of Jesus' words. Jesus was no more than a servant. We granted our favor to him, and we made him an example to the children of Israel. When Jesus came with clear signs, he said, Now have I come to you with wisdom, and in order to make clear to you some of the points on which ye dispute. Therefore, fear Allah and obey me. For Allah, he is my Lord and your Lord, so worship ye him. This is a straight way. Thus, Jesus spent approximately 33 years from his birth to his ascension, preaching Islam to the children of Israel. We also know that prior to his apparent crucifixion, his preaching was moderately successful, as the conversion of some of his listeners indicates. This brings us to our next fact. Fact number two. The Quran states that Jesus won a number of followers. Since Jesus spent his entire life preaching Islam, his message to his disciples must have centered around the basic doctrines of Islamic theology. These disciples would therefore have been Muslims, which is exactly what Islam teaches about Jesus' followers. Let's look at a few passages from the Quran. In Surah 3, 52, we read this. 
When Jesus found unbelief on their, i.e. the Jews, on their part, he said, Who will be my helpers to the work of Allah? Said the disciples, We are Allah's helpers. We believe in Allah, and do thou bear witness that we are Muslims. We find the same thing in Surah 5, 111. And behold, I inspired the disciples of Jesus to have faith in me and my messenger. They said, We have faith, and do thou bear witness that we bow to Allah as Muslims. In Surah 57:26, we find that Allah filled the hearts of Jesus' followers with compassion and mercy. Then, in their wake, we followed them up with others of our messengers. We sent after them Jesus, the son of Mary, and bestowed on him the gospel. And we ordained in the hearts of those who followed him compassion and mercy. If the Quran is correct, then Jesus converted at least some of the children of Israel to Islam. Though there's absolutely no historical evidence for any such conversions, let us assume for the sake of argument that uh, there were first century Jews who believed the message of Jesus and became Muslims. As we're about to see, this assumption only presents problems for Muslim apologists. Fact number three, the Quran states that the Injil, the Gospel, was given as a guidance. Surah 3.3 reads, He has revealed to you the book with truth, verifying that which was before it, and he revealed the Torah and the gospel aforetime, a guidance for the people. And he sent the Quran. So God had a purpose for the gospel. He sent it to guide humanity. Fact number four. The Quran states that Jesus' followers would be superior to unbelievers until the day of resurrection. Surah 3.55 reads, Behold, Allah said, O Jesus, I will take thee and raise thee to myself and clear thee of the falsehoods of those who blaspheme. I will make those who follow thee superior to those who reject faith to the day of resurrection. Then shall ye all return unto me, and I will judge between you of the matters wherein ye dispute. So the Quran states in Ayah 352 that Jesus won a number of followers. And 355 says that Allah would make Jesus' followers superior until the day of resurrection. That's a long time. Fact number five. If there were any first century Jews who converted to Islam at the preachings of Jesus, they didn't last very long. The idea that Jesus' earliest followers were Muslims raises an obvious question. Why have we never heard of any Muslims existing in the first century? We have quite a bit of historical information about Jesus' first century, century followers, but we have no evidence at all that any of them were Muslims. Defenders of Islam will most likely claim here that Christianity wiped out all the records of Jesus' non-Christian followers. But this response is absurd. We have both Christian and non-Christian sources that report early Christian beliefs, yet none of these sources mention the existence of any Muslim-like followers of Jesus. At the very least, we can say with absolute certainty that Jesus' death was uh, well-known among ancient authorities and that Jesus' earliest followers, including Peter, James, and John, came to believe that Jesus had died on the cross for their sins and that he had risen from the dead. All four New Testament Gospels confirm the early Christian belief in Jesus' death and resurrection. Paul's letters also repeatedly claim, uh, proclaim Jesus' death and resurrection. 
Beyond this, an ancient Christian creed recorded in 1 Corinthians 15 has been dated by non-Christian scholars to within a few years of Jesus' life. This creed therefore provides extremely early testimony about Christian beliefs during the time of the apostles. It reads, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. We also have early Christian writings from outside the New Testament that report the beliefs of Jesus' early followers. For instance, Clement of Rome, who knew the Apostle Peter, writes about the Apostle's belief in Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Polycarp, who knew the Apostle John, mentions Jesus' resurrection numerous times. There are even several ancient non-Christian sources that report crucial information about Jesus and the Apostles. According to both the Jewish historian Josephus and the Roman historian Tacitus, Jesus was crucified during the reign of Pontius Pilate. Lucian of Samosata, 2nd century uh, Greek satirist, states, The Christians, you know, worship a man to this day, the distinguished personage who introduced their novel rites and was crucified on that account. Even the Jewish Talmud reports the crucifixion of Jesus. So the most reasonable interpretation of the data is that the Quran is wrong when it says that, one, Jesus never died, and two, Jesus' early followers were Muslims. Nevertheless, let's again be extremely generous and grant, in spite of the facts that there were a number of first century Muslims and that all of the evidence of their existence was later destroyed by Christians. Even if we grant such an outlandish, conspiracy-laden assumption, this still presents Muslims with an enormous problem. What happened to those first century Muslims that Allah swore would be superior to the unbelievers until the day of resurrection? Why was the true religion of Islam replaced by a false belief in Jesus' sacrificial death and resurrection from the dead? Why didn't 33 years of preaching by one of Allah's greatest prophets amount to anything that lasted? Muslims will most likely respond to these questions by arguing once again that Christianity corrupted Jesus' message and that the Christian church erased all memory of Jesus' teachings. But no true Muslim should accept this position, for it conceals the true Quranic account of what happened. Fact number six, Islam teaches that Allah deceived people into believing that Jesus died on the cross. According to the Quran, Jesus was able to conv convert at least some Jews to Islam. But we know from history that Jesus' early followers became convinced of his death and resurrection. So the obvious reason for the fact that we have no record of any first century Muslims is that Jesus' followers came to believe that he died on the cross and rose from the dead. So where did they get the idea that Jesus died? According to the Quran, the idea that Jesus died on the cross was started by Allah. Let's look at the Quran, Surah 4, 157 and 158. That they said in boast, we killed Jesus, the son of Mary, the messenger of Allah. But they killed him not, nor crucified him, but so it was made to appear to them. And those who differ therein are full of doubts with no certain knowledge, but only conjecture to follow. For of a surety they killed him not. Nay, Allah raised him up unto himself, and Allah is exalted in power lies. Notice that this passage declares that Jesus wasn't crucified. It also declares that people believed that he had been crucified. Well, if Jesus wasn't crucified, but everyone was convinced that he was crucified, what happened? 
There are two main Muslim views of this passage. The traditional Muslim view is that Allah took Jesus to himself and disguised Judas to make him look like Jesus. Then Judas was crucified, but God made everyone think that it was Jesus. Historically, most Muslims have held to some version of this view, which is called substitution theory. But some modern Muslims, such as Shabir Ali, now support a different view. They claim that Jesus was crucified, but that Allah miraculously preserved Jesus on the cross so that he didn't die. So even though it looked like Jesus was dead, Allah was miraculously keeping Jesus alive and, once again, fooling people into thinking that he died. Now, most Muslims reject this view because of the Quran's clear testimony that Jesus wasn't even crucified. But either way, whether Muslims want to go with substitution theory or with what my friend Nabil calls theistic swoon theory, Allah is guilty of deceiving people into believing that Jesus died on the cross. But let's follow this view through to the only logical conclusion. Even if we say that Allah's only goal was to deceive the people who wanted to kill Jesus, it's clear that even the people who followed Jesus also fell for Allah's deception. So who is responsible for the false Christian belief that Jesus died on the cross? If Islam is correct, God started this idea when he decided to trick Jesus' enemies into thinking that they had killed him. This leads to certain problems. If the deception of the disciples was unintentional, then we must conclude that God didn't realize he was about to start the largest false religion in the world. God is therefore not all-knowing. If, on the other hand, it was intentional, God wanted to deceive them, then God is in the business of starting false religions, in which case God isn't completely good. So, if, so the God of Islam is either dreadfully ignorant or maliciously deceptive. Muhammad's position also means that Jesus was the greatest failure in the history of the prophets. He spent 33 years preaching, since again he began uh, preaching Islamic theology at birth. Yet shortly after his death, the children of Israel were divided into two broad camps. The only people we have any record of were the people who believed in him and ultimately became Christians, all of whom were guilty of the worst sin imaginable, shirk, while those who rejected his message were guilty of the worst, uh, were, were, were guilty of another great sin, rejecting Allah's messengers. So whether people believed in Jesus or rejected him, everyone would ultimately be condemned and cast into the hellfire. It's strange then that Muslims consider Jesus to be one of the greatest prophets ever. It's also strange that Allah said he would preserve Jesus' followers until the day of resurrection. It seems that Jesus should have been able to win at least one lasting convert to Islam, but he didn't. Further, a true prophet of Islam should have warned his followers not to turn away from Islam by falling, falling for uh, this deception of God. But Jesus never got that message across to them. Indeed, millions of people from around the world now refuse to accept Islam because they believe that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, a teaching that goes back to a deceptive God and an incompetent Messiah. So if we follow the teachings of Islam through to their logical conclusion, we see that God either intentionally or unintentionally helped start Christianity. 
Now, this would be enough by itself to show that Islam is theologically incoherent. But there's one more fact that we need to consider, namely uh, that instead of correcting the mistake that he made, Allah took Christianity to the next level. The Quran states that Allah helped spread Christianity. Once Jesus' message had been corrupted by God and then spread among his followers, God then worked diligently to aid the Christians in spreading this false message. The Quran in Surah 61.14 reads, O you who believe, be helpers in the cause of Allah, as Jesus, the son of Maryam, said to his disciples, Who are my helpers in the cause of Allah? The disciples said, We are helpers in the cause of Allah. So a party of the children of Israel believed and another party disbelieved. Then we aided those who believed against their enemy, and they became uppermost. So a party believed, and we aided them against the enemy until they became uppermost. Notice what this verse says. It says that some of the children of Israel believed in Jesus, and that some of the children of Israel rejected Jesus. Then it says that God helped Jesus' followers until they became uppermost over those who rejected Jesus. So who were the followers of Jesus who ultimately became uppermost over the Jews who rejected him, ultimately became powerful enough, more powerful than the Jews? Well, for nearly three centuries, Christians were a persecuted minority who had no power over anyone. Christians only gained power after the Roman Empire began converting to Christianity. But we know what doctrines were embraced by Christians in the 4th century. There's no question historically that Christians in the 4th century believed in Jesus' death, resurrection, and deity. This means that God helped spread a message about Jesus' death, resurrection, and deity. A Muslim can't claim here that there were scattered groups of people who still believed in the true teachings of Jesus. These groups never had any power anywhere. They were never uppermost over anyone. So the only group that actually became powerful so that Muhammad could point to them and see, look how powerful they are. The only group that fits that description were Christians who preached the gospel as we know it today. So Muslims often claim that Jesus' message was corrupted and that the true gospel was wiped out. And since we don't have a shred of evidence that any first century Muslims ever existed, the first century Muslims were either wiped out immediately or they came to believe in what is now Orthodox Christianity. But why didn't God help that group become uppermost? Why didn't he help the original, the original Muslim followers of Jesus who believed in the true teachings of Jesus? Why didn't he help them become uppermost? Why did he help the, the ones who believed a false message? Why did he help them to gain power? The only group of Jesus' followers that ever became strong enough to overshadow the Jews was, again, composed of Christians, since Christianity spread throughout the Roman Empire. These Christians believed in the foundational doctrines of Christianity. Yet, according to the Quran, Allah helped these Christians rise to power. How, then, did Christianity spread and become the most dominant religion in the world? It spread by the power of Allah. And who started the Christian message about Jesus' death on the cross? God invented this message. Even non-Christian historians are convinced that Jesus' death by crucifixion is one of the best established facts of ancient history. Where did historians get the idea that Jesus' death by crucifixion is one of the best established facts in all of history? God did it by giving us so much evidence that Jesus died. Of course, a false belief. 
Since there are roughly 2 billion Christians on earth at the present moment, it seems that Jesus and God are responsible for starting the only religion in the world that overshadows Islam. Needless to say, I think that the Islamic view is extremely problematic. So how does Islam account for the rise of Christianity? Well, God delivered the Injil as a guidance for mankind. Jesus spent 33 years of his life preaching this message and winning converts. At the end of his earthly mission, Allah took Jesus to himself and tricked everyone into believing that Jesus died on the cross. The deception was so great that even Jesus' followers came to believe that he died by crucifixion, despite the fact that Allah claimed he would preserve them until the day of resurrection. So, God helped corrupt Jesus' teachings, thereby destroying the hard work of one of his greatest prophets. Jesus, of course, didn't do a very good job of teaching his disciples since they fell for this deception immediately. Indeed, they fell for other deceptions as well. The, they even came to believe that Jesus was the divine Son of God. The gospel, therefore, became corrupted, which is shocking since, according to the Quran, God had given the gospel as a guidance for mankind. So God wanted to guide people with the gospel, but he just couldn't protect his book, and he couldn't help himself from destroying the true message of his prophet. But then once the message had been completely corrupted, once Allah failed to preserve the message that he had handed to Jesus... Once he had spread false belief, once it had been corrupted by other elements, what did God do? Did he fix it? No, he helped spread the religion until it became the largest religion in the world. Is this coherent? It requires us to believe that God deceived literally billions of people. God even led Jesus' followers astray by tricking so many people in the, uh, so many people into believing that Jesus died. This could have been avoided if God hadn't been so intent on deceiving people. But this leads to more questions. Why would God want people to believe that Jesus was dead when he really wasn't? Muslims can't argue that God did it to protect Jesus from the Jews or the Romans. Jesus was in heaven. He was safe. So why would God want to give Jesus' enemies the satisfaction of seeing Jesus killed? Why not raise up Jesus without deceiving anyone about it? There seems to be no reason at all for God to deceive these people, especially since such a deception would soon lead to the formation of Christianity. Now, I should say here that I don't have an objection to God uh, tricking someone in certain situations. For instance, suppose some people are trying to kill me, and I walk one way down some alley, and God tricks them into thinking that I went a different way down some other alley, and I escape and I'm safe. Well, that would be some very good reason for God to trick someone, but that's not what we're talking about here. Uh, we're dealing with God tricking even the followers of his great prophets and ultimately deceiving people um, down through history, even to our own day, and starting a false religion. This is very, very uh, different situation. So this is a difficult pill to swallow, yet Islam forces us to view the origin of Christianity in this way. If Islam is true, God deceives people who believe in his prophets. If Islam is true, God spreads false teachings until they become dominant in the world. If Islam is true, Jesus, the Messiah, was completely incompetent and should never have been sent by God, since Jesus' life ended up leading more people astray than any other life in history. 
Because the Muslim view is at odds with any traditional understanding of God's nature, including the Islamic understanding, Islam is an incoherent religious system which should be rejected by all rational people. Islam has a poor and contemptible explanation for the origin of Christianity. If Islam is true, the existence of Christianity makes no sense at all. Now, is the reverse true? If Christianity is a true religion, does the rise of Islam make sense? Indeed, it does. If Christianity is true, the rise of Islam makes perfect sense. If it's not immediately clear why Christianity entails the, rely, the, the rise of religions such as Islam, consider the following line of thought. If Christianity is true, then the following two statements are true. One, people can only come to God through Jesus Christ. Two, Satan is a real spirit being who wants to keep people from knowing the one true God. With these statements in mind, let's see if we can figure out a little something about Satan. If Satan wants to keep people from God, and if the way to God is through Jesus Christ, what would be Satan's top priority? His main goal wouldn't be to get people to lead immoral lives, though he would certainly prefer that we do, since this corrupts God's created order. Instead, his primary aim would be to incite people to reject Christ, for this rejection is what keeps people separated from God. But how would Satan convince people to reject Christ? We should note here that there are plenty of people in the world who simply don't care about God. Satan doesn't have to worry about them because they aren't interested in salvation anyway. Since his goal is to keep as many people from God as possible, we would expect Satan to be more focused on people who are to some extent concerned with religious matters. There are two ways to keep such people from God. Satan would either have to convince them that all religious talk is nonsense, i.e. by spreading secularism, which we see around the world, or he would have to offer them a substitute for the truth, i.e. a religion that rejects what is necessary for salvation. So if, if Christianity is true, we would expect Satan to inspire religions that reject Christ's sacrificial death, resurrection, and deity, even though these religions may be similar to Christianity in other non-essential respects. Now that we have a clear picture of what we would predict if Christianity were true, let's see how Islam matches up with our prediction. The message of Islam goes something like this, believe in God. Do good deeds. If you do enough of them, you'll get to heaven. Respect Jesus, for he was a mighty prophet who delivered God's message to the children of Israel. Also believe that Jesus was born of a virgin, that he performed many miracles, and that he was the Messiah. But whatever you do, don't believe that he died on the cross for your sins. And don't believe that he rose from the dead. And don't call him Lord, because the worst possible sin you can commit is to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Notice that Islam rejects Christianity's essential requirements for salvation while accepting almost every other doctrine. For instance, Muslims are commanded to believe in God, but even Satan and his demons believe in God. Muslims are commanded to do good deeds, but all religions teach this. Muslims are allowed to believe certain things about Jesus, such as his prophet status and virgin birth, but these beliefs do not save a person. Yet when we come to beliefs that are essential for salvation, the deity of Christ, his death on the cross, and his resurrection from the dead, we find that Islam is violently opposed to these crucial doctrines. 
Islam then looks exactly like the sort of false religion we would expect to form, for it denies what is necessary for people to come to God. There is, of course, an easier way for us to see whether see that Christianity predicts the rise of Islam. We can look at prophecies in the Bible. For example, Jesus said in Matthew twenty four eleven that many false prophets will will arise and mislead many. Paul added in First Timothy four one that some people would follow deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. The phrase deceitful spirit is reminiscent of the Quranic claim that Allah deceived people about the death of Jesus. The Bible warns over and over again that false prophets and false teachers would come to distort the gospel. Very few people in Muhammad's time heeded this warning. Throughout history, many people have claimed to be prophets. Indeed, there are many self-proclaimed prophets even today, and there will be more tomorrow. Suppose a false prophet arises at some point in the future, one who claims to have a new revelation from God. Both Muslims and Christians would reject him. But suppose this prophet says to Muslims, Brothers, you have believed in the teachings of Muhammad, but I'm here to tell you that Islam was started by God to deceive people. The pagans in Arabia were doing awful things, such as killing their daughters and marrying hundreds of women. God decided to punish them by leading them astray and making all of you believe something that isn't true. But I'm here to tell you the truth. I am God's greatest prophet sent to rescue you from the original deception caused by God. Would Muslims believe him? Most certainly wouldn't. But why would Muslims reject this new prophet? They would reject him because they would refuse to believe that God knowingly deceived millions of people. Yet this is exactly what Islam teaches when it comes to the death of Jesus. So if Muslims believe in a God who deceives people, even those who follow his prophets, how can Muslims be confident that they have been given the truth, since God is known to deceive even those who follow his prophets? Muslims boast about their reverence for God and their respect for the prophets. Yet upon closer examination, we see that Islam accuses God of one of the greatest deceptions ever. This should cause us to pause and think for a moment why would a religion that prides itself on its view of God proclaim that God starts false religions? Why would people who claim to respect Jesus suggest that he was a tremendous failure? It appears that Islam is so incredibly desperate to destroy Christianity, it doesn't mind destroying itself in the process. In other words, Islam can only explain away Jesus' death and resurrection by making God out to be a deceiver, which destroys any orthodox conception of God. This desperation only makes sense if Christianity is true and if the purpose of Islam is to keep people from being saved. Muslims can object to this all they want. They can continue to proclaim their devotion to God and their respect for his prophets. But there is something extremely strange about the, about the way they explain Christianity. There's something very, very odd about a God who leads the world astray. If Islam is true, God and Jesus are failures. But if, God, but if Christianity is true, God and Jesus were victorious at the cross. For the door of salvation was open to all in spite of those who tried to shut the door. So if we think of this theologically, according to Islam, uh, God deceived people, led the world astray. Jesus was a failure. Couldn't even pick people who would last as his followers. If Christianity is true, God's will was done. 
Jesus wasn't a failure. His mission was perfectly fulfilled, and God and Jesus were completely victorious. Now, Jesus warned his followers that false prophets would come. He also commanded us not to believe them. One of the ways we can spot false prophets is by carefully discerning when their teachings lead to unacceptable beliefs about God. God is truth, and he is love, Islam. If we follow the teachings, would have us believe otherwise. With the time we have remaining in this lecture, I'd like to look at another argument, which I call the argument from forced inconsistency. The idea behind this argument is that if a position forces you to be inconsistent and illogical and to apply double standards, it can't be true. It goes like this. Premise one. If a position forces its adherents to be inconsistent and illogical, the position is false. Premise two. Islam forces its adherents to be inconsistent and illogical. Conclusion, therefore, Islam is false. The first premise is based on the idea, I uh, have to get technical for one second, it's based on the idea that the truth value of a contradiction is always false. This is logic uh, 101. So if Islam compels Muslims to be inconsistent, the only way we can regard Islam as true is if we think that truth compels people to be illogical. I, for one, am not willing to grant that. The only question, then, is whether Islam forces its adherents to be inconsistent and illogical. We'll see that it does. According to Muhammad and the Quran, God inspired the Torah and the Injil, the law and the gospel. Muslims typically claim that these books were corrupted, but that's not the impression we get from the Quran. According to the Quran, the law and the gospel were still available in Muhammad's times. Let's look at some passages. Surah 2946. And do not dispute with the followers of the book, except by what is best, except those of them who act unjustly and say, We believe in that which has been revealed to us and revealed to you, and our God and your God is one, and to him do we submit. So according to this passage, Muslims were to say to the Jews and Christians, yes, we believe in the books you have. We believe in the revelation that you have received. This wouldn't be possible if the Jews and Christians no longer had the law and the gospel. The Quran in Surah 7, 157 refers to, quote, those who follow the apostle prophet, the unlettered, whom they find written down with them in the Torah and the gospel. This clearly says, that people during the time of Muhammad still possessed the law and the gospel. They were able to sit down and read it. Again, this would not be possible unless the law and the gospel were still around. Surah 1094. But if you are in doubt as to that which we have revealed to you, ask those who read the book before you. Certainly the truth has come to you from your Lord, therefore you should not be of the disputers. In this verse, we find that Muslims could go to the Christians and Jews to ask them questions about what was in the law and the gospel. Muslims couldn't possibly do this if Christians and Jews no longer had the law and the gospel. Surah 2133. And they say, Why does he not bring to us a sign from his Lord? Has not there come to them a clear evidence of what is in the previous books? This passage shows that people in Muhammad's time not only possessed the law and the gospel, they were also responsible for following the evidence contained in these books. How would this be possible if the law and the gospel were no longer around or if they had been hopelessly corrupted? 
We should also note that on several occasions when the Quran refers to the Torah and the Injil, it describes it as that which is between their hands. It says that the Christians and Jews had these books between their hands. Indeed, in Sunan Abu Dawud, number 4434, a copy of the Torah was brought to Muhammad. He put his hand on it and swore that it's the word of God. So according to Muhammad and the Quran, the law and the gospel were inspired by God. They were given by God to guide mankind. Jews and Christians during the time of Muhammad still possessed these books. Muhammad even put his hand on a copy of the Torah and swore that it's the word of God. People were responsible for following the evidence contained in the law and the gospel, and people had these books between their hands. Now, we know historically that the scriptures that Jews and Christians possessed at the time of Muhammad, we have copies of the Bible from before Muhammad's time, from during Muhammad's time, and from after Muhammad's time. But what do the scriptures of the Christians say? Well, the only book that has consistently been regarded as scripture by Christians is the New Testament. Muslims can say that there was some original book that was lost, but that can't be the case according to the Quran, because Christians still had the book in Muhammad's time, and Christians were responsible for the information it contained. But there's a problem. The New Testament that existed before Muhammad's time, during Muhammad's time, and after Muhammad's time, the book that was between their hands, between the hands of 7th century Christians, was the New Testament. And what does the New Testament say? According to the New Testament, God entered into his creation in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sins. Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. We find these teachings over and over and over again throughout the New Testament. And yet these teachings are diametrically opposed to the teachings of Islam. This leads us to what uh, Sam Shamoon and others now call the Islamic dilemma. Muslims face a serious dilemma. If Muhammad was right and the book of the Christians is inspired, then Islam is false because it doesn't line up with the teachings of this inspired book. In other words, since the New Testament has God's stamp of approval, we can use it to judge Islam to see whether it's from God. Indeed, the Quran even commands Muslims to go to the Christians to see whether Muhammad's teachings were consistent with the teachings of those who read the previous books. So if the New Testament is the word of God, Islam can't possibly be true because Islam denies the core teachings of the New Testament. On the other hand, if the book of the Christians is corrupt and unreliable and filled with false teachings, then no true prophet is going to tell people to believe in it, to go to it for evidence, or to base their theology on it. And yet Muslims declared that, e and yet Muhammad declared that even Muslims were to believe in the book that the Christians had. But if the book of the Christians was corrupt and false, then Muhammad couldn't have been a true prophet, since he would be guilty of leading people astray and telling them to believe in false teachings. This would mean that Islam is false. So if the New Testament is the word of God, Islam is false because Islam doesn't line up with the word of God. If the New Testament isn't the word of God, Islam is false because Islam teaches that the New Testament is the word of God. So either way, Islam is false. This means that Muslims are forced to be inconsistent and illogical. They have to believe that the New Testament is the word of God, and at the same time they have to believe that it's not the word of God.
They have to believe that it was around at the time of Muhammad, and they have to believe that it wasn't around at the time of Muhammad. They have to believe that it's reliable and that it's unreliable. Now, Muslims try to reconcile the Quran with the evidence, but in doing so, they run into further inconsistencies. Muslims claim that the book of the Christians was corrupted early on. Well, if that's the case, again, why does the Quran repeatedly tell people to go to it as a reference? Laying that aside for now, we can ask ourselves, as my friend James White often asks, on what consistent basis can Muslims say that the New Testament has been corrupted? As it turns out, Muslims can only say that the New Testament has been corrupted by being inconsistent in their methodology. What do I mean here? Well, just about every reason Muslims give for denying the reliability of the New Testament would also refute the Quran if Muslims applied their reasoning consistently. For instance, Muslims will point to textual variants in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament and say, look, since the New Testament hasn't been perfectly preserved, we can't trust what it says. But if Muslims really believe that, they would have to reject the Quran as well. But they don't, which means that they're being inconsistent in their methodology. They're applying double standards. In a previous lecture, we saw that the early Quranic codices contained a different number of chapters than the Quran we have today. We saw that there were numerous other differences among these early Qurans, including spelling differences, different words, different phrases, and so on. We saw that according to both Aisha, the mother of the faithful, and Ubay ibn Kaab, one of Muhammad's greatest reciters of the Quran, approximately two-thirds of Surah 33 is missing. Aisha even notes that the verse of suckling and the verse of stoning were eaten by a sheep. Entire surahs were lost. Ibn Umar declared that Muslims shouldn't claim that they know the Quran since much of it has been lost. And yet Muslims maintain, in spite of the evidence, that the Quran has been perfectly preserved. Why the inconsistency? Are Muslims being consistent in applying their standards? Absolutely not. So on what basis can Muslims reject the reliability of the New Testament? Muslims point out that when Christian scholars were considering which books to be included in the New Testament, in the canon, there were some disagreements about books such as Second Peter. And according to Muslims, since there were these disagreements, you have to reject the New Testament. It can't be, it obviously can't be inspired. What criterion are Muslims using here? It seems they're saying that if there's any disagreement about a book, the book itself isn't the word of God. But as we've seen, even Muhammad's companions couldn't agree about which surahs were to be included in the Quran. Ubay ibn Ka believed that the Quran we have today is missing two surahs. Ibn Masud believed that the Quran we have today contains three surahs that aren't supposed to be there. So there were disagreements even in the early Muslim community about the Quran. Do Muslims say to themselves, well, there were disagreements about the Quran, so we have to reject it? No, they don't. So why the inconsistency? Muslims are also inconsistent when it comes to the scholars they appeal to. In my last debate, my Muslim opponent showed up with a copy of Bart Ehrman's Misquoting Jesus. It's extremely common for Muslims to appeal to the writings of atheist and agnostic scholars when they argue against the reliability of the New Testament. But when we turn to the Quran, the views of atheistic and agnostic scholars are completely meaningless to Muslims. Whenever I quote an atheist or an agnostic scholar on the reliability of the Quran, Muslims say, how dare you quote these biased non-Muslims? If you want to quote something, you have to quote an orthodox Muslim scholar. But wait a minute. Why are the writings of atheists and agnostics reasonable and objective when it comes to the Bible, but unreasonable and biased when it comes to the Quran? 
Well, it's very simple. If you go to scholars and apply methodology consistently, you find that the Bible and the Quran are on similar ground in the fact that uh, there are textual variants in the manuscript tradition and so on. So Muslims can't apply the same standards. They are forced to be inconsistent. And let's consider the views of Bart Ehrman, since uh, Bart Ehrman's uh, work is so popular among Muslims right now. Ehrman's basic argument in misquoting Jesus is this. If God went through all the trouble of inspiring a book, he would also go through the trouble of perfectly preserving it down to, the, you know, down to every letter. God would make sure that the originals would never, lo- would never be lost. He would preserve them. Ehrman even says that God would simply give everyone in the world a copy of the Word of God in their own language. Now, can Muslims apply these same principles to the Quran? Well, do we have the original manuscripts of the Quran? No, the originals were written on stones and bones and palm leaves. They're all gone. The earliest actual manuscripts were all burned by Uthman. So did God preserve the originals? No. Did God give everyone the Quran in their own language? No. Are there textual variants in the manuscript tradition of the Quran? Yes. So according to Ehrman's principles and central argument, can the Quran be the word of God? Absolutely not. If I quote Ehrman to Muslims, will they even think of rejecting the Quran based on these principles? No, but when they turn to the New Testament, suddenly Ehrman's principles become entirely reasonable. Why the inconsistency? Things get even worse when we consider the Hadith. People normally compare the New Testament with the Quran. But these are two very different kinds of books. The Gospels are biographical in nature, while the Quran contains very little historical information about Muhammad. To learn about the history of Muhammad, Muslims turn to the Hadith. The problem is that the major collections of Ahadith were written more than two centuries after the time of Muhammad, and yet Muslims consider them to be reliable, even a reliable source of Sharia law and doctrine. Now watch the inconsistency. The Gospel of Mark was written between 20 and 30 years after the death of Jesus. Uh, in fact, the Passion narrative, some scholars date to within seven years of Jesus' death by crucifixion. And Muslims say it can't be trusted. All of the Gospels, all of the sources we Christians use to learn about Jesus were written within about 60 years of Jesus' death. Muslims say they can't be trusted. And yet Muslims don't have a single historical source that goes back to within 60 years of Muhammad's time. They don't have anything even close to that early. And yet Muslims will treat the Gospels as unreliable despite the fact that they're very early. And the Hadith as unreliable, despite the fact that these collections are very late. So why the inconsistency? And what are Muslims presupposing when they reject the New Testament and yet accept the Quran and the Hadith? They're presupposing that Christians couldn't accurately preserve information, even for a couple of decades, but that Muslims could accurately preserve information even for a couple of centuries. On what basis can Muslims assume this? There is no basis. So why the inconsistency? We've seen over and over again that Muslims are inconsistent when they criticize the New Testament. They apply standards that they would never think of applying to the Quran. 
In every debate I've ever been in with Muslims, my Muslim opponents have been inconsistent. James White, who has also debated many Muslims, says that he has never met a consistent Muslim, a Muslim that applies standards consistently. Why is that? It's because Muslims can't be consistent. If they apply the same standards to Christianity that they apply to Islam, only two results are possible. Either the Muslims will apply the same hyper-skeptical reasoning and scholarship and conspiracy theories to Islam that they apply to Christianity, in which case they'll have to reject Islam, or they'll apply the same methodology to Christianity that they apply to Islam, in which case they'll find out that Christianity meets their criteria with flying colors and that Christianity must be true. Either way, Muslims would have to reject Islam. If Christianity turns out to be true, then Islam must be false. What this means is that the only way a person can continue to be a Muslim is to apply double standards, to be inconsistent, to be illogical. The only alternative is to reject Islam. It's clear then that Islam forces Muslims to be inconsistent. Muslims have to be inconsistent because they have to believe in the divine inspiration of the books, including the book of the Christians, and yet they also have to believe that the book of the Christians has been corrupted since it doesn't line up with Islam. When Muslims try to show that the New Testament is unreliable, they can only do so by applying double standards that would refute the Quran if they applied their standards consistently. If a position forces a person to be inconsistent and illogical, that position must be false because the truth is always consistent with other truths. In this lecture, we've looked at two arguments against Islam, the argument from theological incoherence and the argument from forced inconsistency. We've seen that the Muslim view of the origin of Christianity is completely incoherent. And if Islam's teachings are incoherent, they can't be true. We've also seen that Islam forces Muslims to be inconsistent and illogical and to apply double standards. If a position forces its adherents to be illogical, it can't be true. So we have two sound arguments against Islam. And since we have no sound arguments for Islam, it's clear that Islam is false.